Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Tony was maybe my favourite character. He was just a, wow. He he was a radio DJ with long hair and lawyer. There were some people I didn't necessarily like and respect on Neighbours, but I always liked Tony. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another additional view from the lane, the Tottenham Hotspur, the Spurs podcast from the Athletic. I'm Danny Kelly. And I'm joined on the podcast today by Jack Pickbrook and Charlie Eccleshare, uh, who was at the Spurs game, uh, the first game, of course, in a fortnight at the Spurs Stadium, um, as Antonio Conte's team beat Brighton in the FA Cup. Um, I will ask you straight away in a second, Charlie, um, how it was for you, but I don't think the listeners would forgive me unless I asked Jack and yourself, who are of a similar vintage. Um, uh, Jack, of course, has already spent two days in bed with the news that Ndombele is no longer at Spurs, at least until the summer. Um, but both of you, I, understand, I saw, were in tears about the the ending of Neighbours. Have I missed something? As a person who's never seen an edition of Neighbours, how sad are you, Jack? <laughs> I'm, I'm, well, yeah, I am sad. I haven't actually watched Neighbours consistently since about 2008. Mm. But I want, it to be on, I want it to be there. I want it to be on. And so the news, which I think was slightly oversold when it first came out, that Neighbours was finishing, mm-hmm. I think it's more accurate to say that it's kind of under threat. Uh, yeah, I was I was upset about it. And so Charlie and I spent a bit of yesterday discussing our favourite Neighbours storylines, all from, I imagine, the early 2000s yeah. on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, it's very... I, I, yeah, I must say, I haven't watched it in a long time, but it was absolutely the... Uh, I mean, I watched it from probably the age of about 6 to 18 every day. I mean, it was just... Twice it, a day? It, <laughs> I wouldn't lose eyes today, but you could. Because, but that, that's the thing. It was, it was a real treat, actually. If you were off school pretending to be ill, you could watch the 145 rather than having to wait till 5.35 uh, and sort of feel smugly as you're watching it again with your siblings. Like, I know what's going to happen here. Uh, but, so, I mean, it was just brilliant. It was, you know, such a, it was such mind-numbing TV. And also, it was really... Like, a lot of my friends watched EastEnders, but I was like, no, that's too gritty and hard. The great thing about Neighbours was that it was this happy place where good things seem to happen so very nostalgic yesterday i loved all the uh, <laughs> who are your yeah, favorite and least moments. favorite and least favorite neighbors characters my favorite um that's a hard one what was the oh drew who was sort of um drew kirk who was married died to in Libby. the horse accident very much yeah. so who was kind of of course he did uh, yeah he tragically i mean he was a sort of perfect figure and he um wore a kilt when him and libby got married oh, yeah. and a nod to his scottish heritage uh i liked him i mean the, the later some of the later characters i was probably less keen on um i mean i i guess i i asked this because of course it was only at an award ceremony that i i noticed how much i do look like harold bishop close up i'd heard about <laughs> this from neighbors fans and he was about 12 maybe 12 feet away from me across to a table I thought, yeah, I do look a bit like Harold from Neighbours. And of course, the problem for me was it was at its absolute peak, I think, in the 80s. 
when I was in the music business. And of course, that meant I was at work, inverted commas, during the day and out rolling around the flesh pots of Soho all night. And I, there's, I've got a whole, for a person who watches television 16 hours a day, um, I've now got a complete blank in the 80s and early 90s when I was working in the music press where I just didn't see any television. It just didn't fit the way mm. I was working. And also, I'll be absolutely frank, I thought television wasn't cool enough for me. So I, I missed out on Neighbours. So I am delighted to hear, following uh, you you two and others on Twitter yesterday, um, that, that some of the characters were called Toadfish and Stingray. And I mean, mm. It's like, like the members yeah. of Captain Beefheart's band in the late Toadie, 60s. Toadie was... A- Maybe my favourite character. He was just wow. he he was a radio DJ with long hair and lawyer who was just a really. <laughs> I thought I just thought he was a really you know. Yeah. There were some there were some people I didn't necessarily like and respect on Neighbours, but I always liked Toadie. Uh, I thought he was one of the good guys. Stingray I thought was just a complete prick. He was really <laughs> annoying. Stingray wasn't as good, but they all that family did. Stonefish was another one. They did follow the the favoured Neighbours narrative arc of sort of wrong and but then boy done good and that, and that was what was great it was quite an optimistic outlook on life that often these kids they weren't they were misbehaving because of you know they, they hadn't had the opportunities but then you give them the opportunities oh, and yeah. suddenly toady's becoming a lawyer and all of this sort of thing so it was a very um it's very, it very optimistic piece about social mobility really and, fi- and and finally um the you said somebody died in a horse accident um of course long long running <laughs> Long-running soap operas and indeed cartoons like The Simpsons, people only ever die in extraordinary circumstances. Nobody gets a bad cold which goes to their chest and then they keel over. I think Madge died of natural causes. Yeah, that's a really good shout. You should know that, Harold Bishop's wife. Oh, oh poor old Madge, yes. What was the what was the um the, the, the most ludicrous death in Neighbours? Before we get on to the most what? ludicrous crash. There was a plane crash that killed David Bishop, his wife Liliana, and daughter Serena, I think. Yeah, but but I think that was actually less ludicrous than the one I mentioned on Twitter yesterday when Stingray, who Jack mentioned earlier, he, he just expired in the middle of a barbecue. It was the laziest. He just sat there and all of a sudden it's like he just wasn't bre- He just was sort of stationary and had died. And it was as if the, the script writers were like, right. We obviously need to do something better, but let's let's have this as like a first draft. Yeah, it's a but we'll obviously build yeah. on that. <laughs> and, and they obviously never really got. I was like, shit, we ran out of time. Okay, look, he'll just expire. No, no one will ask questions. It's fine. It happens. So I think that was actually even more ludicrous. Well, I, the, the, if this was uh, one of those six-part Danish detective series, and we were had this conversation, I'd say, okay, I'm going to watch that now. I'll set aside a couple of hours and, I, and I'll watch that. I cannot rewatch the whole of Neighbours <laughs> just to please set aside you. Set a few years. I can't believe we're doing this for the last time. Oh, well, nothing lasts forever, my friend. Back to the football. Charlie, you were there. I'll just say I watched it with great excitement on the television because Brighton are a lovely team to play against. They are really good, so it looks like you're getting Mm. a test, but they never score. They're absolutely toothless, so they're a perfect team to play against, and Spurs took advantage. Yeah, it was was good fun. And actually... Mm. It was the first. It was the first game of any sort for for Spurs in two weeks. It was the first game at the stadium for three and a half. Amazing. Like, it did feel. It did feel like it'd been ages. It's been a weird season, hasn't it? James and I were talking about this. Stop. Where start. You, stop. Start. Yeah. Long you gaps, seem to have yeah. These, yeah. Blocks with tons of games, and then you're like, we haven't had a game in a few weeks. This is weird. But yeah, I thought it was really good, and and um, I don't know. You get the feeling sometimes, and get you get a good feeling about games quite early on, and they seemed um, to use that sort of phrase, sense of the vernacular, at it from the start but they, they did actually they were really in Brighton's faces and obviously got the they've done that a couple of times actually it was P- 
Palace, wasn't it, where they scored one and then scored another straight after, scoring these little clusters. And obviously, most notably, was doing so in the 95th and 98th minute, or whatever it was. At, Leicester, at Leicester, yeah. But it's a good good habit to get into. No, I thought it was great. There was lots to enjoy. Um, Sona Romero came back and were great. Harry Kane was superb, ran the game, man of the match for me. A couple of debuts in sort of dreamy debut game states, really, because the game was won and they could just sort of... Uh, it was stretched and, you know, Kulisevsky could have... I say stretch his legs. He, 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 mm. I know he. Uh, <laughs> it, it caught most Spurs fans' attentions that he didn't look especially rapid on the counter. I'm told he's, he's actually better when he's kind of got defenders in front of him and he can kind of control the tempo a little bit. That was a great pass that Kane made around the corner into Kulisevsky's path and it did look like it would take him about three weeks to get from the halfway line <laughs> to the touchline if he was going to do that. The ball also fell to him on one occasion in their infamous position in the corner of the penalty mm, area where, where, where he does the inside of the uh, of the foot shot. It didn't. It didn't come off. I was, I was hoping to be vindicated yeah. um, as a football hipster uh, immediately by, by him scoring, but he didn't. He should have had an assist, to be fair to him. He was unlucky yeah. that Bergvine skied that, um, that one he laid on for him. Let's, let's go through some of those things because, Jack, I guess you've seen the, t- the game on TV. Uh, I watched since. it on TV, yeah. yeah. I mean, first of all, I have a theory from watching Tottenham for decades, and that is how they start is how they end. Now, of course, the famous night in, in the Amsterdam Arena de- denies this. But usually, if Spurs start fast, particularly at home, they tend to win football matches. Some of that tempo is set by Christian Romero, whose return could not have been more fun. I mean, I hope he, when he came off, it was pure precaution. Here's a fellow who, who likes to play, shall we say, on the front foot. I thought he was great. Again, not against brilliant forwards. But he, he kind of sets the tempo, doesn't he? He's, gonna, he's, he's all in on every movement that he does. He never takes the, the, uh, the safety first option. Yeah, so on the start, I did think it was really important that Spurs started well because I was a little bit anxious going into it that maybe, given everything that's happened the last few weeks, I was a bit worried that the fans might get on the players' backs perhaps if Brighton started well. So that's why it was so good that Tottenham obviously would tune up in 20 minutes. In terms of Romero, I thought he was sensational. Like, he hasn't played for... The guy hasn't played for three months. He's only played a handful of games in English football, really. Most of them under Nuno. And yeah, and he came in and he looked... One, like he was an amazing rhythm in terms of playing games. And two, like he was perfectly attuned to English football, which is just this, like his, t- because of the way that Romero plays, which is so aggressively, always trying to nick the ball, always d- jumping in for tackles. Like, sorry, n- not, you know, no, no, slight tackles, but, but nipping but in, trying yeah. Trying to n- nick the ball yeah. when he sees it five yards ahead of him. And so for him to, he has to be absolutely perfect. And he was pretty much like I can't remember anything he got wrong. And some of the some of the moments where he would just I've forgotten who the the Brighton player would have been, but just darted forward, nicked the ball, and then sprang an attack. Where played a really quick forward pass or ran forward with the ball. He's amazing. Like he's a genuinely incredible player. And for all that we kind of piss and moan about Tottenham's recruitment in the last few years, Romero's been the best buy they've made for ages. Well, the, pr- the proof is the proof of that pudding is still to come. But at the moment, it looks like he is absolutely absolutely right. He looks like. Uh, and we will probably in two and a half years' time be going, how on earth did, did Spurs grab this person ahead of some of the other teams? There are a couple of things I really like about him. One is that he did this on a couple of occasions. He fouls as much as he possibly can without giving away a foul. So there was one, or he'll leave it, He'll leave an extra bit in as much as he can get away with. There was one where Lamptey, I think it was, went into the box came across, cleaned him out, made a really good tackle, but also made sure that he took the man afterwards in a way that's perfectly legal, but also entirely unnecessary, but brilliant. And then there was one he did on Mopé, 
where a foul had already been given just before. I can't remember who committed it. So it was kind of a free hit. So he just came barreling in on Mope and fouled him again, knowing that, well, the foul's been given. I may as well just come and clean this guy out, send him a little message. And and all those things, you watch it and you're like, he must be an absolute nightmare to play against. I mean, it must be horrific knowing you've got him breathing down your neck, just waiting to either nick the ball from you or if you do beat him, clean you out. And and that's what defenders should be. You know, the best defenders are absolutely horrible to play against for, for whatever reason it might be. Uh, and he, for a number of reasons, I just think, I, I didn't, I, I, you know, and Mope is one of these guys as well, who I think he's got a bit of a swagger to him. He likes winding people up. He thinks he's a bit of, you know, man about town. He he wasn't getting anything from uh, from Romero. He looked pretty petrified, to be honest. I spent quite a lot of my life watching um, Nicolas Otamendi, who obviously plays at centre-back for Argentina with Romero. And while their approaches are similar, Romero is just strikingly miles better at it than Otamendi. He's quicker, because Otamendi is actually quite slow. He's quicker than Otamendi. He's also, I think his kind of sense of judgment is much better. Like he, with Otamendi, he'd often dive in for things he's just not going to get to, and then they can kind of play the ball around mm. him and get him behind. Whereas with Romero, I mean, I know he obviously got sent off in like the start of the Conte era. And he does have a history of that. He does it's have not, a history of red cards. And I'm sure over the course, you know, the rest of the season, he probably will get sent off once or twice. But when his, if his, you know, if his judgment is good and he's able to win everything he goes for, then he's able to kind of execute that side of play far better than Otamendi is. We'll know more about Christian when he's played against something like the front three of Liverpool. They've now got five of those players, haven't they, with the arrival of Diaz and Jota's form. When the, when, when the ball is being tapped around you with rather more instinct and skill necessary than, than Brighton's did. I want to make a speech by Harry Kane, but I'll save that. Clearly, he was a hugely important part of the, of the win, Harry. But the return of Son, he's one of those things, isn't he, in life, where you're already amazed at what he can do. And then when he's away for a few minutes, you forget, uh, you know, when he's in, out injured for a few weeks, you, it's almost like you, you get amnesia. And when he comes back, you think, oh, yeah, that's it. Because the, the burst for, for the goal that he made for Kane is something that the team just hasn't had since, hasn't it? He's fantastic. Yeah, he's a cheap player. He's someone who can just give the ball and he'll rip past three defenders I mean he did that in, in that moment you're talking about yeah and again I mean as Jack said with Romero that he came back and slotted straight in obviously Son hasn't been out for as long but even so you might think would there be would, would it take him a bit of time to get into the game and maybe you know it would be one of those and Conte said before that he wanted to give him 65-70 minutes which he did but it might have been one of those where you're kind of like okay He's eased himself back in, got minutes in the legs. That's the main thing from tonight. But it was nothing like that. He was straight into it. I mean, it was his closing down that led to Brighton giving the ball away for Kane's opener. Um, and yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's just he's a world-class player. And when you have him and Kane in the team, and then Romero at the back, I mean, I've said it all along, I think they'll get top four. And I, I don't re- really see any reason to veer from that opinion especially now with Romero and Son coming back they look like the most complete team out of those sides outside the top three which takes us on to Harry Kane given the man of the match I thought a little bit could have been the losing side never gets I thought Bissouma was absolutely amazing oh, in the second half he he is so good every time I watch Brighton I'm just like oh, this guy is unbelievable he was the best player on the pitch in the second half but Kane and look I, I, I don't want to be picking over old ground and I know that he wanted to go to Manchester City. I accept that. I mean, I, w- I would have chained him to a radiator if I was Daniel Levy in, in, <laughs> in my office so as not to let him go 
anywhere. I know he wants to go. I know he served the club well. But what the hell would Spurs do? A, to replace him, and B, without him. He, I know, I know he's had a, a, a three or four months now where people say, you know, he's not doing this, not doing that. He's got 16 goals. He is the, he is the best striker uh, who's been at that club. You know, and I'm, I'm going back through the Klinsmans and the Linekers since blinking Jimmy Greaves or Martin Chivers. What, what on earth would anyone think? 75 million quid or whatever they offered. You know, it's the change from people's turn-ups in football terms. Don't sell Harry Kane. And I hope, and I know we're going to go for it all again in the summer, possibly, but my attitude will be exactly the same. I'm not sure we necessarily will. Why do you think they will go through in the summer? Because I think, I mean, if Tottenham... Give him a new contract. Make him sign it. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, if Tottenham, and also if Tottenham get fourth and let's say, if Tottenham are in the Champions League next year, then I think that will dampen any curiosity in leaving that Kane might feel, particularly if the progress under Conte is clear. Also, I'm not convinced that City would necessarily go no. to a 29-year-old in the market. Like, they want Haaland. If they don't get Haaland, I don't know whether Kane would be a plan B. But I also, frankly, I don't think City particularly enjoyed the saga over this summer. No. Uh, and I'm not sure they would particularly want to try and do it all again. So I don't know. I mean, look, anything can happen in football. This might sound very stupid mm-hmm. in five months' time. But right now, I would... I, you know, I'm certainly expecting Kane to be there next season. But I do think that one, one thing I will just finally want to add on Kane is that even during the summer, there was a bit of a view out there from some people that like, oh, if Tottenham can just squeeze a bit more money out of City, they should take it because Kane's washed up and all the rest of it. And I think that's, that has been proven to be bollocks yeah. this year. Yeah, like, it, 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 it was interesting over the summer. I don't know if you found that this, Jack, but talking to people outside of the UK who are maybe more dispassionate observers were... Say yeah, I think they should sell him. I don't, I don't understand why you wouldn't sell him. And and that you know that was a view. What one one that yeah, I mean now, you know, I mean also at that stage it, it, we didn't know what was really being offered. So you know that th- there was that uncertainty as well. But I mean Kane's position has always been that he wants to win trophies. Ideally, he wants to win trophies at Tottenham, and he only pushed remove away once it looked like that was extremely unlikely and to be fair to him it did look extremely unlikely and then they went and appointed a Europa League level manager in Nuno at best and so I think the position he had was understandable like Jack says if we're coming to the end of the season they're back in the Champions League they are have gone close in the FA Cup or even the FA Cup may be a red herring but if they're in the top four and they finish the season really strongly under Conte and they look like they are making genuine progress then in theory, he should be able to achieve some of what he wants to achieve at Spurs. Obviously, he'd be far more likely to do it if he just upped and went to City. But whether they, you know, whether they will put up the money and there are, you know, emotional aspects as well. So it's complicated. And of course, now he has the opportunity to talk to a fellow Spurs player about what it's like to win a trophy. Normally, players wait till they've left Spurs um, before winning those trophies. And of course, that ticker is somewhere in the mid-80s, high-80s now, the number of players who've done that won trophies. But uh, we should make the note as well that Pape um, Madassar, who is a Spurs player, won the African Cup of Nations. He only played 17 minutes of the tournament, bless him, but uh, I saw him prancing around during the extraordinarily elongated presentation ceremony, which left the poor losing Egyptian players on the pitch for about 15 minutes waiting to get their losers' medals. Uh, but well done to him. I have to say, I was I I was delighted that Senegal won last night. I watched I watched a, 
I watched a fair bit. I watched quite a lot of Senegal games waiting for Saar to come on <laughs> and was disappointed that he didn't. But I, so uh, I watched yesterday and Senegal in mo, they, they had moments where they played some really fantastic stuff. Egypt were horrific. I mean, they were just they're so negative. Total an- yeah. anti football, yeah. like fouling, diving. They've got no creativity. They don't do anything with the ball at all. A really, really ugly stuff. And when it went to Pentathon, for Christ's sake, like Egypt are going to nick this. So I, I was really, really pleased for Senegal, who were definitely, I think, def- definitely played the best football in the tournament. And they're, they're a really good team. Fantastic spine of Mendy in the goal, mm. Koulibaly at centre back, Mane up front. Well, if you've got a, a line like that in the middle of your team, you can ha- you can hang things Mendy, on it. Mendy, Gay, and Kuyate in central midfield. Yeah, like, yeah. So they're fun- funnily enough, they've got Egypt in the in the World Cup qualifier in March. But if they get through Ooh. that, I'm really hoping they can make a bit of an impact in Qatar in November because they've you know they've got some fantastic players and Ali Ussi's done a great job as coach. God, that would be horrific that game. Just I mean the way yeah. Egypt are going to approach that with so much at stake is so I should say as well um should read Jack's piece on Saar which is really good and will get you really excited about sort of what he can offer for Tottenham. Though I should also say given with one hand taken with the other Jack and I unearthed a piece he wrote on Ndombele when Ndombele oh, joined. Yeah. And That's if you'd true. read that, you'd have thought this guy's going to be kind of Pele and Maradona rolled into one. So uh, I would recommend it. Jack won't mind me saying he tweeted it the other day. It's quite yeah, funny. But, yeah, yeah, he tweeted there. it. He does mind you saying it, though. Yeah, no, I don't mind him saying it. Uh, it, it was kind of overexcitable. So this was in the... In, it was actually just before I left the Independent for the Athletic in June or July 2019. We mentioned the the debut of Kuliseski. We also so uh, had a, a brief cameo from Benton Kerr, the highlight of which will have would have driven um, certain recent uh, Spurs managers, and I think Conte absolutely mad that eight point pirouette he did on the edge of his own head <laughs> area to get out of trouble. But of course, he may have been inspired by Christian Romero's Cruyff turn in the corner as well earlier in the game. I don't know. I enjoyed it, and I could see you could hear the Spurs crowd. They, that's not what Betancourt does. He's, you know, he's a, he's a good up and down midfielder. He can see a pass as well, but he is not going to be. And this is, a, I'm really d- delving right back into Spurs history here. He's not going to be Alfie Con spinning his way around the edge of the pitch until Spurs get relegated with him in the team back in the 1970s. What about Emerson Royal? I thought um, in, in a team that uh, tries to push the opposition fullbacks back and well done to Reguillon for getting the better of uh, Tarek Lamptey who's a fantastic little player I thought Emerson Royal are we starting to say more often now that Emerson Royal looked okay I thought it was his best game for Spurs he played really well and he ce- he celebrated his goal uh, <laughs> quite pointedly oh uh, yeah he was going so- quite mad wasn't he <laughs> yeah 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 he yeah. did really well I mean this is this is what you know Conte does I've said it a million times but he improves players and he tries to find solutions i mean admittedly it follows a window where they very much were after a right wing back didn't get one but this is what they have for the rest of the season yeah it was it was royale's probably his best performance i mean i as i I do have some sympathy with him because he's a right back and he's a good solid right back and he's being asked to play right wing back and they're two very different positions matt doherty had it the other way around last season trying to play as a right back if you'd want anyone teaching you how to play this position it's Antonio Conte. I mean, no one is as familiar with how to make wingbacks work. It was, I was talking to someone actually who was saying that when Conte did this in 2016-17, uh, and then there were a lot of copycat versions of it, he was saying, you look at how Conte played, and it's it's a proper strategy. It's mapped out. Whereas a lot of teams were playing... I mean, Wenger, Wenger played wingbacks uh, for the first time in what would have been about 15 years or something with Arsenal. Everyone mm-hmm. was at it. 
but it's very hard to actually make it work in a coherent way over a long period of time. You might get a bit of shock therapy and it and it's something different and it gives you an injection of, you know, of life almost, but Conte properly knows how to play the system and Royale looked like a beneficiary of it. Again though, it was just one game. Yeah. Uh, and against a Brighton team that weren't at their best, but it was encouraging to, you know, for the for his goal in inverted commas, um obviously what was given as an own goal. That's a pretty uh Good run he makes, and and but, but I've what about when he was turning his, up his the, inability to beat a man, and he did, and he kept, and, yeah, he, and turned, he, he turned up on the left hand side, and he turned, yeah, he turned I, up I, at the far post in one move. I mean, it was very different. It was genuinely crazy. Yeah. I, I tweeted it, and I didn't mean it in like a what was he doing there rhetorical way. I was genuinely like, no, what was he? How did he end up there? Because I looked up from my computer screen, and all of a sudden he's chasing a throw in in the centre forward position. So how how and well, why? Well, the, the answer he, to your question, of course, is that if you're playing with three centre backs and two essentially defensive midfield players, the other it's beholden on the other five outfield players to turn up all over the place. They they should have absolute freedom. Now I know Antonio Conte yeah. would want me getting sacked for saying that, but they should have absolute freedom to go where they want. Because you used the phrase, I think one of you used the phrase the other day about agent of chaos, talking about Matt Doherty. If you, mm. if you can't pass your way through opposition teams, you've got to break their defence somehow. Um, and that may be the answer, is, is to create moments of absolute chaos, which I'm hoping for from Kulisevsky as well. I think we've probably done enough about the game. Let's talk about the manager. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about the transfer window, particularly that last week of it. And of course, since then, Antonio Conte does his press conferences where either he is being unbelievably honest about everything he's ever thought about football, Jack, <laughs> or... Um, he, he is a child who cannot hold his tongue. What have you made of uh, of the manager since the transfer window closed? I think we got a, a kind of dollop of what we probably would have expected in the pre-match press conference, which was moaning. And I think we, I think everybody has to be quite thick-skinned about Conte's moaning because he's going to do it a lot of the time. He's done it a lot already. He's only been in the job a few months. And if if people get too if people get too upset every time Conte has a moan then I think we'll, everyone will drive themselves a little bit mad. So I think it's probably best that we just realise that this is just part of what Conte does and see it for what it is. Yeah, when I sent to... Because the, there's the written section and the broadcast section, and I... Sorry, the broadcast section, then the written section. And and the written section was a few questions, and I described it to my desk as sort of low-level moaning from Conte. It was, it was basically just a stream of n- nothing sort of explosive, just kind of general jibes and kind of and I think he does just he sets himself such high standards and Jack's right because if, if he'd said what he said a few weeks ago it would have been like oh my god like Conte blast yeah, blast da, 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 da. but now it's just like yeah he'll do that like he, he will voice his dissatisfaction I think he has incredibly high standards I mean there was a funny bit and this was pointed out to me by another Spurs reporter where he said something like look we're not going to sign players who've made hundreds of first team appearances and won a lot of important titles you know that's just not what we're going to do and it was like isn't that exactly what Ben Sankur is <laughs> a guy who comes yeah. with sort of five years of being a regular at Juve with three Serie A titles but it's like he he obviously just you know he, he always wants more so yeah, I think a lot of it is, is expectation management as well. Like there was a line where yeah. he said something like, "If you have to get rid of three players who you've just signed, that shows that something is wrong." And clearly, it suits him. Clearly, it suits him politically to 
show this message of what a mess this club was before I showed mm, up. Yeah, because that way he can he can make he can kind of cast himself a bit more as the savior, and understandably so because he kind of is the savior. It, so I think it, there is a bit of politics going on there as well. Have either of you met him or know anyone who has met him? Because of course his his public persona, and I know he's trying to be precise in a second language, and I admire him for that. He speaks with that slow cadence and almost as if every word has to be chiseled out of the cold, hard ground. It's the kind of tone I imagine that hanging judges used to used to employ back in the day. Does he ever have a laugh, this lad? Does he have any spare time to have some fun? I hope so. Well, <laughs> he used to, um, with the Chelsea pack uh, back in the day, he would meet them all for drinks at the sort of local Cobham pub before Christmas. And I think they did all find him very open. Good. And quite genial. I mean, also, that there were a few in-person press conferences back end of last year which I went to and and even then you do get a bit more of a warmth I think from him I mean look he's never going to be like you know really uh kind of a vuncular figure but I think he does I think he he does have that side to him I just think when he's in kind of work mode he's extremely intense and serious and demanding and always thinking you know what's the next thing I need to do yeah Okay, well, look, I, I I only said that I was on a human level, um, and I do understand uh, how difficult it is to be the manager of these big football clubs. Do always hope that they've got some hinterland other than just thinking all the time about mm. whether I can get the wing back to cutting on his left foot the whole time, <laughs> because that is not the way for a, to be a happy and productive person long term. And I speak as somebody who, when I worked on magazines, I now realise, you know, 25, 30 years later, I had gone insane. I was so overly intense about what we were doing. Every thought, every action, every word, every every day was taken up with making tiny marginal improvements to something that most people were already perfectly happy with. I do know you can drive yourself bonkers. Let's have a quick break. It's like I imagine doing a job where you write about one football club and the task with writing thousands of words about the minutiae of that club. I mean, I don't know what that must be like, but probably similarly drives you nuts. Yeah, you, you end up reminiscing about old episodes of Neighbours. You've gone so through the looking glass. <laughs> Listen, let's take a quick break there because I really want to come back to one of those um, very detailed articles that uh, Jack has written. And that is, um, very, I think, a very important, insightful piece in The Athletic about something that is on the mind of Spurs supporters all the time. What would a world beyond Enoch like? And is that world ever likely to arrive in the near or medium future? What about that next here on The View from the Lane? This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Yeah, welcome back, everybody, to Brew from the Lane. The voices you're hearing are those myself, Danny Kelly, Jack Pitbrook, and Charlie Eccleshare. Uh, Jack, you wrote a piece under the headline Enoch and the Long-Term Future of Tottenham Hotspur, so it's pretty straightforward. And the implication there was that without putting up what in the estate agent trade, or certainly in the staff sales flats they used to call the sticks, without putting up the for sale signs, Tottenham is very much on the market. Is that is that your opinion? That, that is kind of the nub of the issue, Danny. It's Tottenham would not describe themselves as for sale, and they're not for sale in the sense that, you know, they're not list, you know, you can't find them on Zoopla or an estate agent. But oh, wrong, wrong move. <laughs> yeah, but it's, then it's not the same as saying that, so for example, my, my flat is not for sale. And equally, I'm not, I would never talk to anyone about selling it because if I did sell it, I would sell it through an agent. Whereas Tottenham's not quite like that. Like there are, you know, there are conversations happening. And this is really what the, the nub of the piece was about, that, you know, there has been, a, there is a lot of interest in Tottenham, whether from people who want to perhaps buy a stake in Tottenham or buy the whole thing. If they want to buy the whole thing, the valuation is £3 billion, which shows what an amazing job in that sense Daniel Levy has done ever since. I think. Oh, we'll... hang on. You, you, you <clears throat> could value your flat at £3 billion. It doesn't mean it's worth it or anyone's going to pay it. Well, OK, that's a fair point. But I think it's, I think it's not, imp- I think it's likelier that they will get a bite at that level or if not for the whole thing at 3 billion then maybe for a stake that would value effectively value the whole thing at 3 billion yeah there is a lot of interest there there are a lot of there have been a lot of discussions over the years uh, the closest i think big deal recently was Todd Booley the american kind of sports investor got quite close in 2019 for about 2.3 billion pounds which we mentioned in in the story. So there has been a lot of interest over the years. Well, I guess the, the the question really is what's likely to happen. And frankly, I think a full, I think an outright sale of the whole thing at three billion is unlikely. But I think a sale of a stake in the club, in a way which we've seen quite a lot of in Premier League club. You know, Crystal Palace sold ha- half the club to Americans. Uh, City Football Group, slightly different scenario, sold sold a chunk recently. My sense is that if Tottenham were to sell, let's say, 10, let's say 10% for £300 million, pounds, you know, Daniel Levy would continue to run the club as he is doing at the moment. And frankly, mm-hmm. I can't, I can't envisage any scenario in which Daniel Levy sells up and goes skiing. I just really don't think that's on the cards at all. 
I think it's far likelier that either he sells a bit of the club and continues to run it as he's run it for the last 20 years, or, and I know that this has come up in conversations with potential investors, he sells the whole thing and stays on as CEO for the next five years. Uh, so Daniel Levy, I think, is certainly not going anywhere, although that doesn't mean that there won't be any changes to the club's ownership. Let me ask you if you addressed this in the piece or even thought about it. Joe Lewis may decide that he's a person of a certain age. He may decide that he's had enough of running his business the way he currently does. Or, and let's be absolutely frank about this, the forces of nature, if I might quote the Jungle Brothers, will come into play. Uh, nobody but nobody lives forever. Is there a succession plan for his ownership of his business and the connection with Spurs? Honestly, I don't know the answer. I don't know what would happen to Joe Lewis's shares if that were to happen. Obviously, you know, Lewis has majority stake in Enoch. Levy has a smaller share in Enoch. Mm -hmm. Even if that were to happen, I, I would still imagine that Daniel Levy would continue to run Tottenham on behalf of Enoch just as he's done since December 2000. Sure, but you can never guarantee that, let's, let's say, in the normal course of events, so, you know, these things happen, that the shares or the power, let's say Joe stays, you know, stays healthy and the power is handed to some of his children, some, uh, some uh, agglomeration of his children. You can never guarantee these people are going to have the same interest um, in business, in football, in whatever, in yachts as, as, their, as their father. We've all seen succession and we don't want much as the, I was just thinking that's where you're fun, going. No, fun that, yeah. though it is. And I have to say, uh, I was dragged by what hair uh, remains to me, by the hair of the head, by my by better half in front of the television, said, sit down, you will like this. And she's rarely wrong. You just don't want any of that going on. You know, your piece was, was beautiful. It is, and I recommend you listen to our voices to go and read it. I mean, it, it picks at all the parts of this move, of this, you know, kaleidoscope. That you can do, but that's the part that, there is, that struck me that there is no answer to. You're quite right; said you can't answer the question because we. I mean, goodness knows, has Joe Lewis ever spoken a word in public? I don't think he has. Has he? He's not one of those not, um, who, who likes to let his feelings out. Not as far as I'm aware. I can't think of any no. specific examples. No, you know, see at Manchester United where the, the, the Glazers are kind of part, are part in the process of passing their businesses down the generations. If these investors come either to buy the club. Charlie, or to buy a chunk of it. I mean, it is so valuable now. And look, one can praise Daniel Levy for getting it there. But truth of the matter is, if you're a Premier League club and you've got half a brain on you, you should be able to get very big valuations for these properties, if I might use an appalling word um, about what mm. our community assets in, in their own way. Where would that kind of money come from? You've got Middle East oil money. You've got tech money. Where else could it possibly be? Well, yeah, that is it. The impression I was get, was always given was it would be, as you say, the the oil money, gas the money, Gulf, yeah. the, the the nation states. Yeah, gas money. I mean, or you're talking about hedge funds, you know, American hedge funds. But for any end of one individual, that is, um, it's a huge, huge investment, and that's why I think there is that expectation that it would be a group of people rather than just one. Because if you are talking about one, then you are looking at oligarchs or members of royal families uh, and that sort of thing and and obviously you know there there may well be a lot of resistance if you are talking about yeah certain individual you know you look at the case of Newcastle and it's interesting actually because Newcastle we we talked about this before but you know I I, I was surprised by 
even supporters of the of Newcastle who I thought you know who generally are liberal in the way they think and I was expecting them to be like yeah this is a disgrace kind of in the way obviously it's, it's different and you need to be careful to make comparisons but I think the way the Spurs fans reacted to the suggestion that Gattuso was going to become their manager there was something quite encouraging about that something quite uplifting yeah. and you know, and, and it's different as well because I know that the Newcastle takeover was muddied. What some fans said, and they don't have to justify themselves, was this isn't about Saudis. This is about getting rid of Mike Ashley. We're just so delighted to be getting rid of Mike Ashley that, you know, we, we can kind of accept this. And obviously Spurs fans, yes, they have a lot of Spurs fans have issues with Daniel Levy. A lot of them don't think he does a good job. A lot of them don't like him personally, but I do there's nothing like, I don't think, anyway, the same antipathy towards him as there is Ashley. So I don't think there'd be, you know, the same rejoicing that he was gone. And I do think as a fan base, much of the fan base anyway, prize themselves on equality. I think that was why there was such dismay at the homophobic chanting in the Chelsea game. And so it would be very, very interesting to see how that would be received. I mean, my sense, and maybe this is being overly optimistic, would be that there would be almost revolt is too strong a word but there would be revulsion from a lot of the fan base if if we were talking about a saudi style takeover yeah which does then and and depending on how much you know sometimes fans are listened to sometimes they're not depending on how much of an issue that was that does narrow your options and so you are thinking probably more about north america and that part of the world and and some sort of hedge fund but but the the options are are vanishingly small and and that's what happens when when you have a a a business that's worth as much as tottenham's is yeah i mean obviously you know you could get a company that appears to be impregnably money producing like spotify before neil young destroyed it of course but i understand that Eck, the man who runs it he's an arsenal fan or so you know that that's that's what we've been presented with and and jack it's interesting like to me that uh spurs might be and newcastle is its own example i was surprised at the vehemence with which newcastle fans um because of course i've spent a lot of time in the last few months arguing about this on the radio and so oh, you know i made my own opinion clear that i think it's a terrible idea for the saudi royal family to be able to sports wash through a brilliant club like newcastle united and I was being told just to shut up. And the, the, the speed at which the Newcastle fans, 99% of them, bought into the whole thing was extraordinary. But it's interesting to me that this is one of the moments where Spurs' lack of trophies is actually comes into play. Because if Spurs don't win things, and we're still being charged the highest um, entrance fee to go and watch the football there, the only thing that the club, the, the club has left for its supporters, if it doesn't win trophies, is the standing of the club, the reputation of the club. What kind of club is it? And, you know, that's where all the great arguments about, you know, Danny Vlaustra, uh, we want them to play great football at the very least. And I suspect it's a complicated idea, but the lack of trophies makes it even more important that they get the right owner for the, the self-worth of Tottenham fans. Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting point and important. In terms of the Saudis, I mean, to be honest, there has been, you know, I have, through the course of reporting this piece, I have heard suggestions that Saudis were interested in in Tottenham before they bought Newcastle. I have to say, I should should be clear that has been denied to us. But I I think that so I think that ship has probably sailed since PIF mm-hmm. bought Newcastle. The the problem with the valuation of Premier League clubs nowadays is that the number of people who can buy it is very very small. Like, so Forrest Lee, for example, who was put up at the he went to one of the Tottenham games in De- December at home. Daniel Levy then rolled out the red carpet for Forrest Lee 
at the training ground the next day, you know, meet senior members of staff, meet the players. Obviously, they were trying to put on a really good show for Forrest Lee. Now, Forrest Lee's rich, but he's not so rich that he could very... He's the richest man in Singapore, but he's not so rich that he could very easily buy Tottenham for three billion quid and have a lot of money left over. You know, it, it, he no. would probably feel, feel the impact of having done that. So if the richest man in Singapore, like, there's no guarantee that he can do it, then you know, suddenly it's, uh, the number of people who can do it is very, very small. And at that point, would you want, would you want Elon Musk to buy Tottenham, Danny? Um, I'm not sure I would. Do you want um, Jeff Bezos uh, to buy Tottenham? Well, if he, if he left me and you to run it, uh, I suspect, yes. <laughs> if, if he came, if I, you know, if, if I finish this podcast, Elon, mate, rings me and says, Dan, you <laughs> seem to know all about Spurs. I'll buy it. Would you happily run it? And I say, as long as I don't have to do too much traveling back and forth to the UK, I certainly will. As long as I don't have to get up early. Yeah, as long as I don't have to get too early. I haven't got livestock <laughs> like you. I don't have to get up. Kind of, I can kind of see Elon Musk buying a football team. Just because it's the, like, the, the opportunity for like reflected glamour and prestige oh, totally. and being a hero to millions of people around the world and not just people who, tweet and who, who follow him on Twitter. I mean, and that, that's, that's another reason why, and for me, and I hate to say this, all roads keep leading back and forth to the European Super League or however it's rebadged in the near future, because that, that will be, uh, you know, we've already seen the, the other confederations outside of UEFA starting to put together club competitions that cover more than one continent. I think the next one that will be coming off the blocks is the proposals for a completely trans-American tournament from Canada to Tierra del Fuego. I mean, forget that the logistics are insane uh, for that tournament. The globalization of football hasn't quite finished. It's nearly done. The European clubs and leagues nearly dominate the globe. But uh, if if and when that, that gets rubber-stamped and confirmed... Then once again, I think there might be one more round of investment in the, you know, because football's nuts. I've, we've lived through the pandemic. We've lived through the the, the 2008-9 recession and the one economy that seems completely, and, you know, I know at the moment, you know, the, the pandemic, so no football clubs have got any money. And yet Vlavic can go for 80 million with, with, a, with a few months left on his contract. You know, the football seems to be the economy that resists all natural laws. This is why Spurs were so keen on the Super League. Because of course. if Spurs, if Spurs had been in the Super League, because as, as it stands, like there's you know, there's no certainty that Spurs can be in the Champions League year no. on year. They haven't they haven't Spurs haven't played the Champions League game for coming up to two years. But if Spurs were in the Super League, then they would get guarantee hundreds of millions of pounds of Super League revenue every year. There would be cost controls, which meant that they wouldn't be able to get massively outspent by Manchester City or Chelsea or whoever else. It oh, would, and Spurs would have had an ownership stake in the Super League. Jack, but, you don't you don't have to tell me. Would have been the, like the, from the a, super the Super League was a, a bus designed for twelve passengers. Yeah, and Spurs were the twelfth one. They they were literally running to catch the bus as it was leaving the station. Put the morals out. If I mean, I, I'm not I'm not advising this as a way to live your life, but put the morals out <laughs> of your head for a minute, and it would have been a huge inverted commas, win for Tottenham on, on a financial oh. sense. And if they'd been in that, they could have sold it. I was on air at the moment the news of the Super League broke, and I had three hours to talk about it. And I found myself, quite rightly, shouting it down as a moral vacuum, a disaster for domestic football, an unsporting landscape, all those things. And yet there was a part of me here somewhere in my sternum going, 
Bloody hell, Spurs win a Super League. Fantastic. Now, I never once expressed that on air. I'm doing it now because, of course, the, the dust has settled for the time being. You're absolutely right. Well, and it, it insulates you from making the terrible decisions that mean that these clubs can find themselves out of the champ. You know, like a club like Man United, which is, is just an unbelievable example of the fact that even with all the financial advantages you could possibly want, you can still make enough terrible decisions that mean you miss out. Whereas that, that insulates you against that to an extent. You know, if you're Tottenham and you appoint Nuno and all of these things that mean maybe you don't get Champions League and they, you know, they, as Jack says, they haven't qualified, even nearly qualified in the last two years. You can you can sort of get away with that. Though maybe they will get away with that this season with Conte. You still so. get to play Real Madrid and Juventus every week mm. around the world in the uh, the Tesla Super Leagues. Yeah. But um, you just have to, even if you appoint Nuno, that was the, the, the beauty of it. Though one still... One still wonders whether the financial stratification and therefore ossification of football leagues that we've seen accelerate in the past 10 or 20 years, whether that would really be taken out of the European Super League or whether Spurs would have always finished 12th each year, collected the money and said, thank you very much indeed. And of course, if you look forward in, in the next six days, we've got a Super Bowl between the Rams and the Bengals, where for all its faults, American football has once again um, prove that parity is an amazing thing if you can get it going. Because I presume you would have got 500 to 1 at the start of the season against those two teams being in the Super Bowl. Yet there they are. That is, I mean, we were talking about this on the pod the other week. That is the beauty of the American system, really, is that mm-hmm. the people who run NFL have realised that if you want a competitive... Like, the free market is not your friend when it comes to producing a competitive sports league. The free mar- nope. If you have a free market with an open door for money and investment and everything and no caps on spending then people are going to spend as you know, people are going to invest and spend as much as they want whereas if you have this kind of cartel style thing with controls and caps and you you kind of keep the free market out of it then in fact that sort of you know it's in one sense you might describe it as anti-competitive like in financially but in the sports sense it's far more competitive and maybe the super league would have been that i don't know they worked out that what what they needed was competitiveness, not necessarily for the fans of the individual franchises, but for the television companies yeah, to pay them right. the kind of global money that they wanted. Here's a sport that has limited global reach. Geeks like me like it, but basically it's for 300 million Americans. But the only way you can then charge the kind of television money for it is to make sure that everyone those Americans at the start of the season thinks, my team could do it this year. And Cleveland were... Sorry, Cincinnati, the Bengals, were as, as bad a t- as a team could be three years ago. And there they are now with a chance of, of winning the Super Bowl. Always worth looking at other sports to see how football could improve. Of course, the irony is that all other sports are looking on enviously at football. It's been an absolute education today, chaps, and a, a delight. I will tell people we were doing this just past dawn because I'm due to have a local power cut here. But much as I've enjoyed this, I don't think I want to be doing it early in the morning. Even looking at the two of you early in the morning is not the way I want to live my life. But it's been an absolute joy. Thank you both very, very much indeed. Thank all of you for listening. I hope you've had uh, as much fun listening as we've had doing it, in which case you've had an absolute blast. And uh, if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can read all of our articles on Spurs, as well as everything else on the site. And it's a gigantic amount of gear by going to theathletic.com. Uh, forward slash Spurs pod. And right now you can get a full 33% off a full subscription. We'll be back on Thursday, by which time Spurs will play yet another football match. Should say as well, 
Sorry, mm-hmm. still on it. Um, if you are a subscriber to Athletic and you want to make the most of your subscription, Matt Slater, who Jack wrote the um, Spurs uh, Enoch future piece, is a brilliant person to follow. He does all sorts on football finance and, and those sorts of things, but does it in this really fantastic way of making it very, very accessible. So if you don't follow him already on the app, I really would recommend him as someone to follow. There we go. Another reason why you should get our subscription to The Athletic. Thanks very much, all of you. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.